Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Hello and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM at Chapel FM Arts Centre. You're listening to the second episode of 2023 and we're going to be hearing the second part of the sonic soundscape that is a walk in the park, a walk in Roundhay Park in Leeds, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the setting up of the park creation of the park it's in 1872 what a story that was but not for this moment so this walk in the park is as i say a kind of sonic adventure in round hay park created as part of meet you at the mansion a project that uh, that i helped to run in the summer with a quiet word the production company in leeds that was a performance walk in the park this is more of a, a kind of audio walk performance if you like with lots of poetry narration history and also some beautiful summer sounds so uh, you can lie back in bed or listen to it in the car wherever you want or you could go to a quiet word facebook page and download the beautiful map by amy levine and all 26 pieces of audio which correspond to 26 places in the park and you can just on your phone and walk around the park and listen in situ it's uh, it's a lovely project please do have a listen and also if you haven't listened to the first episode do go back a walk in the park part two here we are by the entrance to the park that fronts onto weatherby road if you're walking to round a from oakwood seacroft or gipton it's probably easiest to enter the park from here it's worth noting that when the park was first opened this would have been the main entrance. Prince's Avenue was not built until 1878. Nowadays, however, this feels very much like the park's back door. For me, with Roundhay Park, it's one of those strange oasis spaces that is next door, but always felt a bit alien for whatever reason. Growing up, it felt like it was 10 miles away. We never really went there until I became much older. I guess it was one of those things with my mum as a single parent and couldn't take me there as much as she'd have liked. Obviously it's expensive to get taxis and not everyone has the time to walk long distances. My mum has quite a few health problems so walking long distances, especially when you had two young kids at the time, would have been difficult to say the least. I didn't really go here on my own until I was much older especially now that I've got this electric skateboard. It's so easy to get through to Roundy Park following Arthur's Rain, the Wybeck Woods route, and it's more accessible for me now. It's more accessible to go on a skateboard than a bike, would you believe it, because of all the barriers they put in place on the trails. Roundhay feels very posh to people from Seacroft, 
Maybe it's because they take care of the park. Ours historically take a very long time to get the smallest things done, so there's a bit of animosity sometimes. It's very possible there's a divide with Weatherby Road. Seacroft is known as a priority neighbourhood, but in reality, a lot of things don't get made a priority, such as potholes, for instance, and cycling infrastructure. Roundhay Park is great, but it's not the only park in Leeds. There's so many other pocket parks that are full of potential that just hasn't been used. Rain Park is one of them, Arthur's Rain, and there's quite a few in town, in fact, like behind the Marion Street Church. Yeah, I live right on the edge of Seacroft, so I live parallel with um, Eastley Road, so not far at all. There's a back entrance on Weatherby Road to Roundhay Park that you can get into, so... Yeah, I grew, well, I grew up in Roundhay originally, near the Deer Park, lived there with my mum for 22 years, and then I moved out of my mum's house and ended up finally in Seacroft. With, I suppose this is like my first forever home, because it's the first house that we moved, in, moved into with my little boy. It's basically what I think of when I think of my childhood, because we grew up in a, a single-parent family and my mum had three kids and a mortgage on a house in Roundhay, so it was whatever we could do for free. But having Roundhay Park down the street is a godsend, and I think you really take it for granted when you live near it, but having lived away from it a few times, I do really miss it when, I'm, when I don't have it on my doorstep. Some people call this the back entrance to the park. We're down by Weatherby Road, where there are two little former lodge buildings and the Grand Gateway. This was actually the grand entrance to the park for visitors when Thomas Nicholson finally got himself installed here in 1819. You would have come on the new turnpike that was only opened about 1810, I think, uh, from Leeds, and uh, you would have turned here and gone up this long driveway beside the impressive Waterloo Lake that had been dug out by soldiers coming back from the Napoleonic Wars and it was all about impressing your visitors you know instead of coming up the old Park Avenue and just immediately into the grounds of the mansion this was uh, a long enough journey in your carriage with you know horse-drawn carriage to create a very grand impression of just the, you know, the social standing of the, the gentleman you were visiting. Take a moment to stand with your back to the lake and look down the steep slope of the dam to the stretch of grass below. It is hard to imagine now, but this was once the site of an open-air swimming pool. In fact, there were two pools, a paddling pool for children and a larger, deeper one for more committed swimmers. The site was first opened in 1907 and had its own dedicated entrance on Weatherby Road. Neither of the pools were heated and both were noted for their bracing temperatures. In addition to the pool, there were changing rooms, stone banks of seating for spectators and a special hut to contain the equipment needed to filter the water. Although it was initially very popular, by the 1920s the swimming pool had fallen out of favour and the site had become run down and in need of repair. In 1937 the pool was refurbished and restored. 
and over the next few years, outdoor swimming became increasingly fashionable. Photos on the Leodis website show the swimming pool packed with bathers during the 1940s. An ideal place for local children to exercise and take their minds off the grim reality of war. By the 1940s and 50s, the pool was attracting up to 100,000 visitors every summer. Sadly, the swimming pool closed for good in the 1980s. The pool's use had declined again, and the council no longer felt that they could justify its upkeep. The pool was filled in, and the structures surrounding it demolished. The pool's former footprint was visible in outline, until the early 2000s. But even that has long since faded out of view. The pool still lives on, though, in people's memories. And, if you listen carefully, it may still be possible to hear the sound of splashing water, or perhaps the shrieks of happy children floating up from the grass below. We're on the top of the dam at the south end of Waterloo Lake, so behind us is the, is the dammed water body of the Great Heads Beck, and then downstream from here is the White Beck Valley. And this used to be a waterfall, a grand landscape feature that people would come specially to see as one of the sites of the park. And then just below us here, where there's now sadly nothing more interesting than a car park, there was the, the Lido, an open-air swimming pool that was much beloved of children of Leeds from the early 20th century until it was closed sometime in the 1980s, remade in the 1930s and, uh, yes, very popular. Apparently, each spring there was a, a race to be the first one in the water when it opened for the season. <laughs> uh, much squealing, no doubt. <laughs> the swimming pool was... Um... So the madness of the English weather, but we still had in the 60s some extraordinary summers. So you would have quite a few weeks of very pleasant weather. And you could go to the pool early in the morning until sundown. Obviously I was at school, so after school, um, it was just a great meeting place. Um, years ago when they used to have... Um, the, the Lido in the 70s on um, special Sundays and mum would take the whole family and we'd walk from Chapel Town up here, have a look around we used to get a boat that you could and we used to go rowing in the boat we did that once a year oh, from nice. the 70s yeah, we used to all get dressed up and walk, it was a long walk for a 8 year old yeah and we never caught the bus, we'd walk up here and then we'd have a picnic and we'd walk all the way back. Oh. Yeah. Long time. Gosh, forgotten about that. The swimming pool is not the only long-vanished feature that once existed at this end of the park. When the lake was first constructed, a waterfall came tumbling from the dam, cascading down into a rushing stream. The waterfall remained until the park was remodelled in the 1990s, but it was a popular and prominent feature of the park for many years, especially in its early days. Here is a description in Jackson's new Illustrated Guide to Leeds and its Environs, published in 1889. The waterfall is of course the sequel to the lake. 
It represents the one tiny brook which has given the sheet of water to the park. It is not a Niagara, nor even is it a Lodor, for the water does not tumble and froth with angry violence as it should in a wild and freeborn waterfall. But nevertheless, it glides smoothly and pleasantly through the frame of verdure which has disguised the embankment and is a sufficiently pretty picture for imagination to feast upon. The water from the lake now drains away through a concealed culvert, pouring out into the Wykebeck, which runs along the Wykebeck Way towards Temple Newsham. The Waterloo Lake, nearly three-quarters of a mile long, and more than a mile and a half in circumference, presenting an almost unbroken expanse of 33 acres. Its depth is about 60 feet. Ten years were occupied in its formation, the cost being about £15,000. It was finished in 1815, memorable, as everyone knows, for one of the decisive battles of the world, hence its name. We were told, in answer to the inquiry whether there were any fish in the lake, that there are boatloads, principally pike, perch and roach, and perhaps trout, to please the voracious pike. So runs the description of Waterloo Lake in Goodall's illustrated Royal Handbook to Roundy Park, produced in 1872 to introduce the newly opened park to the public. The lake was built at the behest of Thomas Nicholson, a local landowner who landscaped much of the Roundhay estate in the early 19th century. According to historian Stephen Burt, the lake was originally called Waterloo Fish Pond. His research, as detailed in his own illustrated history of Roundhay Park, suggests that work began on the lake in 1815, thanks to the purchase of an extra strip of land which gave Mr Nicholson ownership over the Great Head Speck, the tributary stream from which the lake is fed. The valley floor was dug out and widened by unemployed soldiers returning from the Napoleonic Wars, while the lake's construction took two years rather than ten. Whatever the truth of the matter, Waterloo Lake is perhaps the park's most prominent and well-known feature. It remains well-loved by anglers to this day, and is also home to a canoe club, a rowing club, and the swimming section of the Leeds leg of the World Triathlon Championships. For many people, however, the lake is a place for reflection and peaceful contemplation. New to Leeds, and keen to escape the red brick sprawl, I was told of this oasis with its promise of green spaces, water and wildlife. A lakeside beckoned me, and I joined the city pilgrims who walked its pathways, circling water, stopping to reflect on the tragic loss of life here when young ones tried to swim alone across this water-filled canyon of ancient rock. Later, I too came to swim, but in organised events. I ran and cycled around its borders, stopped in the cafe and did park run joined the crowds who came to dream, to reflect, 
and to be part of something beautiful. I'd like to get out on the lake on the boat actually. The other day we got we came here, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, the guys were out fishing and was putting back a huge fish and I didn't realise how deep the lake was and they were telling us how, how deep it was and what's in there. Um, I think he said there's World War II ammunition in down there. 60 foot deep and a load of um, World War II ammunition. <laughs> My name is Jack Singh. I'm here since one and a half year. And I've been in the park three times a day, so every and I, I, I still keep discovering things. So three times a day. Three times a day. Now it's much less, but the beginning it was, you know, it's just to uh, get my day started. Was just coming out and um, seeing at the greens, and because originally I'm from Germany, from North Germany, and we have a lot of green there. So uh, this kept me, reminding me of my childhood, basically. So that was when I moved to Leeds with my family in 1996 and it was... Roundhay Park was in quite a state because it was very, very hot and there was a drought. And the Waterloo Lake, there was a fault in Waterloo Lake so it wasn't holding its water. So I associated it from the beginning with cracked earth so it was no water, or hardly any, cracked big fissures in the soil. Uh, and then they spent a lot of money shoring up the foundations, and now that, that doesn't happen now. But 1996 was a very specific year, and everywhere, it was the first time I'd had a garden as well. And in the garden, it's clay soil in Leeds, so big cracks in the earth. It was quite apocalyptic, really. I think my earliest memories of Round Day... Uh, were my auntie Jenny, now uncle Joel, um, taking me and my sister and my cousin there on a skateboard and we formed what I, I call the Seacroft bobsled team. I don't know how we managed it, we must have been very small kids, but there were three of us on one skateboard going down a hill. <laughs> and in case you don't know, skateboards don't have brakes. So when we went past the playground, we kept going and we almost went into the lake. Oh, gosh. I mean, I can see my brother racing a dragon boat across the lake. That was a nice thing. We came out as a family to watch him do that. I think it was something he'd done with work. But that was a quite a surreal moment to see all these beautifully decorated boats sort of skidding, skidding over Waterloo Lake. So that, that I think... Um, walking around the lake is quite nice. You're not allowed to cycle around a part of it. Um, so it's nice to just kind of walk or cycle part way around and just kind of sit. I've sat on a bench at the edge of the lake once and just watched with my bike, watched kind of swans and in the lake and stuff. It's often mainly me and my own. I sometimes go out with mates to the skate park that's just at the top of Roundhill Park because I've always been interested in kind of more action sports like mountain biking and skateboarding and I quite enjoy using the skate park that's at Roundhay. Here we stand at a boundary in the woods, the edge of a shallow canyon. The gully is filled with fallen leaves and lumps of rough-hewn Yorkshire stone. Tangled tree roots form a sort of staircase on the valley side, 
leading up towards a low stone wall. It is perhaps the base of a fallen bridge, the stones the remnants of a crumbled crossing. There is no need for a bridge now, there is no stream for it to ford, but this is still a crossing place of sorts. Beyond the little canyon there is more land to explore, fields and woods and places that are off the beaten track, land that is bordered by the Elmeet Hall estate and by the now-closed school on Elmeet Lane. This is where the park grows wild. The paths here are meandering, overgrown, untended, covered in brambles and nettles and ferns. It is quite a contrast to the well-tended flowerbeds and landscaped vistas that spring to mind when most people think of Roundhay Park. These wild places are not without their fans, though. They provide an ideal environment for urban foragers, mountain bikers, cross-country runners and people whose dogs need more exercise than most. They're also good for those who want to spend some time in their own company. A perfect place for solo meditation. Perhaps if you have time to spare today, you could cross the threshold. Step across the canyon to the wild place beyond. Wander amongst the bushes and the broken down fences and see what you can find in the wilderness out there. We've come up into the woods on the east side of Waterloo Lake and just above us here is Elmeet Hall and that was built by the great engine maker James Kitson who'd made a fortune by that stage in the 1860s. Uh, he'd been an engine maker since the 1830s, right place, right time, pulled himself up by his bootstraps um, having come from very humble origins and become this great engineer. So he'd bought Roundhill Lodge from... Nicholson in the 1860s and rebuilt it as a very grand country pile. He was therefore not best pleased to hear the news that the town was thinking of acquiring this um, old deer park on his very doorstep as a public park. You know, I don't want my workforce coming and spoiling my peace and uh, other neighbours felt similarly and they banded together to try and, uh, you know, to raise objections to this whole project. Um, but they reckoned without the fact that by that stage in the 1870s there were far more folk who were actually invested in the notion of Leeds as a place for citizens. You know, they weren't, any, they weren't just subjects to be done unto by the elite. These were people, who, many of whom had the vote by then. Men only, of course. And the corporation was the, the reformed corporation that had a budget, albeit not enough, to buy the park outright. And they had responsibilities and they wanted to look after the health of the people of the town and knew that providing green space and space for exercise was you know, part of their responsibility. So they weren't going to give in to these few elite folk who happened to own property in the immediate vicinity. And so the park was actually bought, you know, provisionally bought at the auction, but the elite didn't stop there and they tried then to scupper this parliamentary bill that had to go through in order to allow the corporation to spend this much money in one chunk. Because having spent 139000 on these two lots in the auction, lots 19, the park, and lot 20 for building land, 
139,000 these days would be 18 million pounds. And uh, so they had to get a special act of parliament. And again, the elite tried to prevail upon the various contacts in the House of Lords to again say it. So it passed through the Commons and then they had a very nervous moment. Was it going to get through the final stages? Um, and John Barron had to appear in front of the select committee and spoke at length, apparently, and said that when he discovered that the elite were again putting up arguments against the project, I was very much surprised. I'm putting my own turn of voice into that, and I think it was um, a euphemism for probably he was hopping mad, I would think. You know, here was this marvellous project that had cost him a great deal of time, effort, and risking his own property, mortgaging his own house in order to make it happen. And these few people who happened to be fortunate enough to live up here were trying to stop it happening. Well, he wasn't having it. And so fortunately, we did get the bill through Parliament in June 1872. And then they could go about arranging the grand opening in September that year. I like to walk where I'm closer to nature than necessarily other people. But I like to get, I guess what I call off piece, I like to get into the woods. And so I like to get in at the bottom of... um, of Park Lane. This bit, Ram Woods, I come in every day. But I like to get into the bottom, go along the gorge, and then sometimes, if I can, I've got time to get up onto the hill, which is directly opposite Hill 60. Because in autumn, you can see from the top of the hill over there right across to Hill 60, because there's no foliage. Um, but yeah, I just like to be amongst the nature rather than necessarily bumping into more people. Um, I have been with mates, but often I just go out on my um, on my BMX on my bike, with um, just on my own and explore around Roundhay Park. It's quite nice. Um, there is um, there's a few tracks um, towards Wyke Wyke Ridgeway, towards over there that lead over there from Roundhay Park, and they're quite nice. You just kind of go around and explore because I've always enjoyed biking, and I quite enjoy just riding the mountain bike trails near there. The little church of Roundhay St John's was built by the Nicholson family, who owned and ran the Roundhay estate in the years before it became a public park. It was opened in 1826 thanks to a generous endowment on the part of Stephen Nicholson, who took over the running of the Roundhay estate following the death of his half-brother Thomas in 1821. As prominent local landowners, the Nicholsons felt it was their duty to provide a place of worship for those who lived nearby. The graveyard that surrounds the church contains the graves of many notable members of the Roundhay community. Amongst them are Sir James Kitson, the railway engineer and industrialist, who lived at Elmead Hall. Kitson was the Mayor of Leeds from 1860 to 1861. He was also one of the local landowners who most vociferously opposed the creation of the public park, objecting to invasion by the city centre Hoi Polloi. Not far from Kitson's grave, which takes the form of a small Celtic cross, is a wall plaque in memory of Joseph and Sarah Whitley. They were the mother and father-in-law of Louis M.A. Augustin Le Prince. Le Prince was a pioneer in the development of early cinematography and made a series of short films in the late 1880s 
which have a claim to be the earliest moving pictures in the world. One of these, Roundhay Garden Scene, was shot in the Whitley's Garden at Roundhay Cottage, later renamed Oakwood Grange. Both Joseph and Sarah are featured in the film, which shows them dancing around the lawn. The film is available to view online, but sadly the house was demolished in 1972. Another grave of note is harder to find, thanks to encroaching foliage in the lower part of the graveyard. This is the final resting place of Charles Thompson, a former gamekeeper on the Nicholson estate. In May 1840, Charles was accidentally shot by William Nicholson Nicholson, the nephew of Stephen Nicholson, who at the time lived in Park Cottage, a now demolished building that stood near the site of the present-day Roundhay Fox pub. There had recently been a spate of break-ins in the area, and Stephen Nicholson, who lived in the mansion, had asked his staff to keep an armed guard on the estate. It was a rainy night, and around about one in the morning the gamekeeper decided to shelter in the doorway of Park Cottage. Clearly Stephen Nicholson's anxiety had communicated itself to his nephew. Hearing a noise outside his house, William and his groom went out to investigate. Sadly, they were armed. They saw a figure crouched in the doorway and challenged him to identify himself. But for whatever reason, the stranger didn't hear and didn't answer. William raised his gun and fired, hitting the figure in the stomach. The man cried out and raised his own rifle. Seeing this, Nicholson fired again. It was only on coming closer to inspect the fallen stranger that he realised that he had shot his uncle's gamekeeper. The first shot had wounded him badly in the abdomen. A surgeon was called to attend to his injuries, but he died of his wounds later on the next day. The strangest thing about the story is that Charles Thompson apparently forgave and exonerated his killer. In a sworn statement given shortly before his death, he said that he had failed to recognise the two men who approached him and that he had intended to shoot them both, believing them to be burglars. If Nicholson had not shot first, it would have been Thompson facing charges. Nicholson was cleared of murder at the inquest, a verdict being recorded of homicide by misadventure. But the events cast a pall over the rest of his life. Charles Thompson's gravestone is located near the graveyard wall, just below the southeast corner of the church. Although it is hard to find nowadays, Stephen Burt has recorded the inscription on the grave in his illustrated history of Roundhay Park. In memory of Charles George Thompson, gamekeeper of Roundhay Park, who died May the 19th, 1840, aged 49 years. Brief time death's cruel summons gave between his duty and the grave. He roams no more the woodland round, nor hears the gun's deep starting sound. While friends and kindred o'er him weep, he calmly takes this last cold sleep. What is this place? It is hard to say. 
those who have stumbled across it over the years have given it many names. The Iron Summer House, the Secret Bandstand, the Hidden Gazebo, the Old Pavilion, the Abandoned Folly. All of these names are good descriptions for this structure in the woods. A rusting metal frame and a concrete base hidden amongst the trees. It feels like something out of Narnia, unexpected and incongruous, like a London street lamp in the middle of a winter wood. It is the kind of place where one might expect to encounter a fawn or some other mythical being. Even those who know of its existence confess that it is hard to find. It is easy to take the wrong path and walk right past it, finding oneself in some other part of the woods. Perhaps it is a stage for the ghost of some long-forgotten bard, or a meeting place for the fair folk, a platform for their midsummer revels. The truth is that it was probably a garden feature, a ready-made structure bought and installed by the owners of Elmeet Hall. Before the trees here had reached their current level of growth, it would have provided those using it with beautiful views of the lake and the Nicholson estate. Elmeet Hall, which borders Roundhay Park, was home to James Kitson, a wealthy entrepreneur who had made a fortune from producing railway locomotives. The extravagant house he built on the estate is still there, although it is currently used for offices. James bought the Elmeet estate in 1868 and lived there until his death in 1885. He was one of the landowners who objected to the purchase of the Nicholson estate by the council, unwilling to countenance the people of Leeds having such close access to his back garden. Yeah, there's quite a lot of hidden paths in Roundhay Park as well. I mean, they have started to sort of pedestrianise, if that's the right word, a lot of them, so they're a lot more accessible. But if you go to the back entrance of Roundhay Park near Weatherby, there are a lot of little hidden trails that take you up to quite a lot of, like, little abandoned things that you wouldn't necessarily know are there unless you just come across them by accident. So there's like an abandoned folly that you can tell that they probably had afternoon tea and stuff in at one point. Um, so yeah, there's lots of like little interesting hidden things to find. Well, where we're standing at the moment in this uh, extraordinary uh, gazebo, ruined gazebo, there's not many places left in the park that are kind of ruined. I mean, obviously there's the folly, um, and that must have been a, a marvellous thing in its, in, its, in its heyday. I do like places where, that are fairly secluded, um, and, and, and ruins are always, you know, interested, in, in, interesting places to go. Um, and I do like to have... Um, uh, to use all the paths sometimes and just not maybe plan a walk because there's so many different ways that you can go, you know. It's, it's, it's quite nice to do that sometimes, just let your feet guide you. Flowers with a friend by James Lewis Spiro. Betwixt the trees and weeds, your eagle eyes recognise small flowers, see the value that my bad eyesight cannot. How lucky you are to have such sight, 
and point out the details I struggle to find. Today, I am flower spotting with a friend. Such a gift it is to have such eager eyes, to chat as we walk through towering trees, and the way you smile at the camera and me. How lucky I was to know your face, to be distracted from troubles and escape. That's what made this park a sacred space. I'm happy to share flowers with friends. Here we are by the little bridge that crosses Great Headsbeck, just before it empties out into the lake beyond. The bridge carries a footpath that leads you up towards the upper lake. It is a delightful spot, just the place to stop and take your ease, and maybe spot some flowers with a friend. The woods here are home to bluebells, wood anemones, wild garlic, celandines and many other species. From here you could walk along the beck, following the water back towards its source. If you looked with eager eyes, you might even find the oddly named Dogmouth Spring, which bubbles from the rocks at the side of the path as you walk along the ravine. Hi, I'm Brendan, Brendan McBartland. Uh, I've lived in North Leeds for most of my life, and so I spent lots of time as a child and as a wayward teenager roaming through the woods and the paths of this park, but I never really appreciated it, I don't think, uh, until I kind of moved here as an adult. And then during lockdown, I've, I think I've really kind of gone to town on it in that I'm here every day now. I'm either walking through it or I'm running through it. And it's a bit like that John Peel quote about the fall, that, that they're, it's always different but always the same. And just that kind of, those infinitesimal changes of, of kind of, of the seasons on a daily basis, I find really fascinating. And it's just, it's just mad, like the light, the light changes constantly. So, you know, you're looking at a tree that you've seen hundreds and hundreds of times, but it always looks different because the way the light is on that tree or because the way the wind is blowing through it or because there's some rain hitting it or, you know, there's a bird in it. There's something very calming about that. I think if you surrender to it, it's a simplicity which I really appreciate. Animate. I'm surprised people don't climb into my arms more often. This one strokes my bark, peels a soft flake free. I don't mind. Settles on an outstretched limb, rests one foot in a cleft, stays safe from the midday sun. We are a close-knit group, Mulberry, Holly and me. Our mingled canopy hangs low to shelter birds and animals, and such a one as this, who comes to sit a while, breathing the air we breathe. of man and the hand of time each here have left their trace 
amid the ivy-covered stones of this romantic place. Yet what a rich and charming view from off its towering walls of woodland, lake and village spire that to the mind recalls some ancient tower in bygone times when watchers gazed below, ready to mark the first approach of some advancing foe. So seeming old, so quaint and odd remains this sylvan spot, fit place for contemplative thought on man's uncertain lot. Today we build our mansions high, impatient of delay. Tomorrow, when our task is done, they crumble and decay. Here I could linger with delight from passing hour to hour. There's beauty in each moss-grown stone, in every leaf and flower. This poem, by Mr J. H. Eccles, was printed in full in Goodall's illustrated handbook to Roundhay Park. The guidebook waxes lyrical about the old castle, which is actually a rather fanciful summer house, built by George Nettleton, a master builder, in 1811. It was used as a picnic spot by members of the Nicholson family and their guests, especially during the hunting season, when parties would go out to shoot the pheasants bred on the estate. When the park first opened, it was sometimes known as the Ivy Castle, and old photographs show the whole edifice covered all over with creeping tendrils. Nowadays, the upper storey has been blocked off, but it was often used as a sewing room by female members of the Nicholson family. By the time the park was opened to the public in 1872, there were concerns about the safety of the building. Here is a word of warning from Goodall's illustrated handbook. We would not recommend the visitor to make a violent effort to mount the spiral staircase amongst a crowd, but rather to leave the pleasure of the view from the top of the castle until he can be accommodated more comfortably. The roof is not at all adapted for a rush, nor is it particularly safe. The visitor will obtain from this point of observation a broad, expansive view of the Waterloo Lake and the woods that skirt its margin. Probably the room in the tower, which is now in a dilapidated state, will be renovated and made inviting enough to entice the visitor to rest a while, for refreshment, intellectual or physical, as the case may be. Sadly, the hoped-for renovation has never taken place, and iron grates now block the turret stairways. It's the castle. I know it's not an ancient castle, I know it's only essentially a folly, but I think its position at the head of the lake, just slightly tucked back in the trees, is a surprise to people who don't know when they come there. And my friends and I used to fly our model aeroplanes in that field. And we used to turn up with our bikes and park them where the old oaks that are now falling down are. And we just spent summers there. The so-called castle in Roundhay Park, overlooking lovely woodland across the other side of the, the valley, is, a, is not an actual castle. It's a, what you would call a folly. So part of landscaping this park in the early 19th century, when Thomas Nicholson had bought the land, was to create interesting features. 
and this was one of them. So it's in a nice position and with a lovely view. And there used to be a room on the top and... Uh, the, the family of Nicholsons who were here in the 1860s, apparently the girls used to come and do their sewing here in the mornings. Here we are on the little bridge that spans the gorge below the upper lake. Beneath the bridge the water spurts and gallops, spilling from the waterfall above. Give yourself a moment to watch it as it falls. Is the waterfall a trickle? or a torrent today? Is the stream sauntering or surging? Either way, there is power in the water. It has carved the canyon here, etching patterns in the rock, smoothing out the stones as it races through the rapids and slithers through the centre of the steep ravine. The water marks its movements on the world as it travels, writing its story in the earth. Turn around and watch it as it drops away below you, ducking and weaving as it tumbles through the trees. What traces will it leave behind it as it goes? What journeys will it make from here? Give yourself a moment to think about the water. Where is it going and where has it been? How long will it take for the droplets that have run beneath your feet to make their way down into the lake below? How long will it take for them to reach the beck that will carry them away towards the river air? How long before they reach the coast and spill out into the cold North Sea? How long before the water that's just run beneath your feet returns as rain to Round Day Park again? I particularly like the... Um water elements of the park so on the north side of the ornamental lake there's a waterfall down into a little gorge and then obviously on the north gorge there's um, there's water running in the stream all the way down that so I, I like to I like to see those things I just um, I think it's the noise the noise is very calming very grounding um, and also, it's natural to assess the seasons through the trees and through the birds, but there is a there is a, a seasonality to the stream as well. You'll see once the um, you know when we have heavy rains and stuff in the winter, and, and have snow, that the that the streams in the gorge can sometimes get really really deep, um, and then again in summer, obviously they 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 just sort of almost disappear. Um, you just get a sense of time, um, not just from the you know from nature, but from the water as well. Uh, on the little lake, there's a there's a bridge on the north side, and if you look over that bridge, you can see down into a um, quite a tall waterfall that runs down into a stream that goes down into the big lake. And um, it's usually very quiet in there, um, and it's been spectacular both in summer and in winter. But more recently, with the snow and things, it's been amazing. So that will be it for me. flat wooden jetty at the edge of the lake, beneath the shade of the tall trees. To left and right the rushes rise from the water, stretching up into the sky. 
The lake below was deep and clear, the bottom thick with weed and rich with detritus. Fallen branches, algae-covered tennis balls, old glass bottles, broken tiles, rotting leaves and giant mussel shells. Tiny minnows dart across the lake bed, rumoured to be home to the elusive white-clawed crayfish, while pond skaters scud across the surface of the water, surfing the meniscus between two worlds. What can you see when you look down here, when you peer below the reflections on the surface? What treasures might be hidden in the mud below? What stories does the water hold? The upper lake, or top pond, was built for Thomas Nicholson. It was part of his vision for the landscaping of his newly acquired estate in the early part of the 19th century. Built before the land purchase which made the construction of Waterloo Lake possible, it was originally intended to be the estate's main water feature. The bed of the lake is lined with impermeable clay. It is much shallower than its larger counterpart and covers an area of around five acres. Over the years, it has played host to rowing boats, pedalos and even skating parties. While in 1896, the famous French unambulist Charles Blondin walked across the upper lake on a tightrope. It may not have been as spectacular as his most famous stunt, the crossing of Niagara Falls, but it was made the more amazing by the fact that Blondin was 72 years old at the time of his visit. Here is a poem, inspired by a visit to the lake. It was written by residents of Terry Yorath House, a nearby home providing residential and respite care for people with physical and or learning disabilities. Unbroken, egg nested in grass, close to the water, egg Light bluey green, size of a teaspoon, shiny and smooth, not a crack in sight. Who really decides you? Will you come out? Will you come out to play? Passerby, sat in your chair by the waterside. Passerby, rainbow-hued, size of a giant, swathed and swaddled, squidgy and soft. Have you been broken? Have you come out of your shell? Uh, my name is Martin Child. My connection with Roundhay Park, I suppose, starts when I was very small because I was born and brought up in this area. And in all honesty, I misspent quite a lot of my youth with my friends in Roundhay Park riding my bike around and wandering around with friends and flying our model aeroplanes and being chased by the park keeper and even skating on the ice on this lake in 1963. It was a lot quieter in my mind then. Um, I think I remember things that you could do then that you can't do now. I remember the little paddle boats on the small lake. I remember the rowing boats you could hire on, the, on Waterloo Lake. I even remember there used to be a little train that ran along the far side of the small lake. I remember that. Um, don't ever remember actually going on that, but I do remember it being there and it had its little um, shed there where it was kept. 
I do remember the donkeys. You used to be able to go on donkey rides and things like that. And seeing it change on a daily basis through the seasons, I find it endlessly, endlessly fascinating. But like when it snowed recently and you know, the little lake that we're sat, at, sat at, at, at at the moment froze over. And it was great, you know, coming and seeing that and then thinking, well, what will it be like the next day, you know? Will it, have, will, it, will it be more frozen? Will it be less frozen? Oh, it snowed on top, of the, on top of the ice, and that was just amazing, you know, and seeing ducks and coots kind of, you know, walking tentatively across that ice, or the ice cracking beneath them and then falling in. It's a constant source of, of interest and new things to see. So in, in the throes of lockdown, I started lockdown feeling, feeling OK because I'm an introvert, and I've got anxiety, so I was kind of, this is kind of like normal. This is normal for me, this is all right, I can weather this. And then fast forward about two or three months and I was kind of, you know, losing my head a little bit. And, um, yeah, walking around this, this lake every day and uh, my son noticed him first. There was, there was big brown duck and it, it was just this massive, massive brown mallard. It was completely different colouring to all the other mallards in the lake. Uh, it was like a pale brown and it was huge and it was great. And it just made me really happy to see it. And so um, me and my son started, every time we saw it, we would shout as loud as we could, big brown duck, and, um, and, and damn the consequences of people staring at us. And, and I decided, uh, I, was, I was reading about the, the comic book writer, Alan, Alan Moore, and he uh, worships a serpent deity called Glycon. And he knows that Glycon isn't real. He worships Glycon because he knows that if you have religion in your life, you're probably happier as a, as a human being. So I thought, well, that's a bit like Big Brown Duck. Not that I'm worshipping Big, Big Brown Duck, but when I see Big Brown Duck, if Big Brown Duck makes me happy, if I decide that that's going to make me happy, then it will make me happy. And so that's what I did. And every time I'd see him, uh, I'd shout, Big Brown Duck! And that was whether I was with my son or I was on my own or with my wife. She wasn't happy about it. Uh, and, then, and then he disappeared. We came to the park one day and Big Brown Duck wasn't there. So that was really sad. But then, like about, I don't know, a month or two after that, we noticed that one of the, the younger mallards was a bit different from the other mallards. And he was getting bigger than all the other mallards. And it's the son of Big Brown Duck. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe Big Brown Duck just kind of migrated and he might even come back. So it could be that kind of in springtime or summertime that they'll both be here. And then that'll be, I don't know how I'll feel about that. I'll be, I'll be I don't know. I'll be transcendent, I suppose. <laughs> I just, well, during this uh, lockdown thing, you know, COVID thing, put it that way, because I normally used to go to gym. And, uh, you know, now I started coming here, I don't think I need to go to gym. <laughs> Didn't realise, I mean, we lived here for, oh, more than 35 years, yeah. It's the little lake, or the top lake. It's the swans. It's the fountain playing and the fact that that goes on even during this time. Yes, it's the top lake, which I think is magical. Just before the last lockdown, we were able to meet up with uh, my partner's uh, nephew and they have a little girl, Harper, who's five. And we went to the small lake, which is, I think at the moment, my favourite place, but it's never as busy as, as the large lake. And I don't know what came over me, but I decided I'd play hide-and-seek with her and just kept disappearing at my great age behind a tree and jumping out and saying her name. And hearing laughter and seeing a child laughing with glee 
I have fond memories of the old little railway track that used to run along the side of the um, upper lake because I remember as a small child riding on that very train. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. Perushi. 